0: Well, last week, we had a wonderful word from John. John was an eyewitness who spent years with Jesus. He wrote a book so that people would believe the story. It's an amazing story. But Jesus, we learned last week, said things like this. If you don't take me and think of me as food and take me like my body, and my blood into you, you won't even live. Jesus had all kind of women and men learning from him. And we're going to find today that those words rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Would you please stand as we read John's portion of Scripture, where we're going to hear some hard words that Jesus brought up. This is in John. You'll find this in chapter 6, And we're going to jump in in verse 60. John 6, verse 60. Well, here's what happened after he said those words. Verse 60 starts this way. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we love good words, encouraging words, inspiring words. We get rubbed wrong by hard words. Lord, I know that it says in Isaiah that your word is like water that rains down on a wheat kernel. And when your word goes out, the wheat becomes bread and people are fed. I want to pray that as a promise right now, that these hard words of your son would be like seeds that entered our hearts. And Lord, you promise that when your words are given, they will be successful. And I ask for that to be true today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. Words can change your life. I remember it was three years ago. I was on a unit, and we had our first COVID patient. He was a military man. In fact, he was in charge of a whole base. But he was in a group internationally, and he got COVID. And being the leader of the floor, I put on the mask. I was nervous, even though I had worked on a tuberculosis floor years ago. But when I put on that N95 mask, and it hugged my face, and it hurt a little bit, I was more scared that I was going to go in and breathe what this guy had, take it home, give it to my wife. I was scared. So you can imagine when this week I was told as a leader to tell my, work, to tell my floor three words, I got excited. I will not forget the date. It was Tuesday, March 28th. I gathered my teammates and I said three words, masks are optional. We took them off. We wanted to go out and burn them. And when we looked at each other's faces, remember just those three words. Before those words, the masks were on. But by the authority that I was told to say, masks are optional, words can change your life. We have a number of people in our congregation that lived around the 1940s. You should talk to them because back in that time, Whenever a disaster struck or evildoers threatened to destroy life as we know it, there was a comic book teenager named Billy Batson, and he would say one word, SHAZAM. Now, if you're younger, you're like, what in the world? That's not a magical, powerful word. But back then, he could do this. And the the, the actual word SHAZAM is an acronym for six immortal, strong people. SHAZAM stands for Solomon. Now, he's even in our Bible. He's very wise. Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Arch- uh, Achilles, and Mercury. Back then, that magic word was everywhere. You've maybe heard these words, abracadabra. Maybe for you, it's like, I would never use that one. Or hocus pocus, open sesame. Or my kids working through Harry Potter, it was expecto patronum. I had to Google that because I was like, what did that mean? Well, you can look it up, but it's when you say that, Even the dementors have to run. It's a big word. Like enchanting spells, certain words used strategically could change anything. But you're going, Howard, those words are fictitious, magical, worthless. Well, not quite. Jonah Berger a professor of marketing, researches the power of words, and he wrote a book called Magic Words. In it, he reports his findings. If you say the word recommend rather than you'd like something to happen, did you know that 32% of the time you're more likely to get that across the finish line? He also said that if you are going on an online dating platform, and if you're a man, and if you use the word whom showing your excellence with grammar, rather than who, you have a 31% higher chance to get a date. And if you say is not, if you sell a product, and some of you here are in sales, rather than isn't, which is that slang we use down here in the South, you will have people pay, on average, three more dollars. But I found the following story the most worthy of your attention when we think about the power of words. A researcher from Harvard University went to New York City to interrupt people. And I thought, I've worked with some New Yorkers, and if you're a New Yorker, we love you. But we know that New Yorkers are busy people. They're smart people, and they don't want to be interrupted. Well, the researchers went there, and they said to themselves, let's go into a library. Let's walk up to a person who's doing photocopies and say, I got to make some copies. May I? They researched this. I'd love to watch this on video. Well, here's what they found out. A researcher would wait in the library for someone to do that, and they tried two approaches simply with their words. The first approach made this direct request. Here's the words. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? By the way, some of you are going, what's a Xerox machine? This was a study done in the 70s. The second approach... They said, walk up to that New Yorker and add one word, the word because. There's something in us as human beings when someone says because, we seem to lean in. So this second group said, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? Well, wouldn't you know that the two approaches were almost identical except for that one word because, but adding the word because boosted the number of people who actually let the researcher skip the line by 50%. In research, that's a pretty huge amount. But to be fair, some of you are going, wait a minute. In that approach, because you don't want to be rushed, maybe it was the reason. Maybe it wasn't the word. So they sent a third group back to say this, a meaningless statement, but they used the word because. Excuse me, busy New Yorker, I've got five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Because I have to make five copies. Did you know that even using a meaningless statement after the powerful word because, they had the same results, 50% more people. The title of today's sermon, If We Will Listen to Jesus' Words, is is the term magic words some of you are like, well, I came to church and I heard magic. Magic, we use that in our culture when we want to think about the possession of a supernatural power. Jesus said the following magic words. He said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Those are powerful words. And today we're going to see that three magic words of Christ are life-giving. First of all, Christ's hard words. And some of you like to take notes. I don't want to lose you. That's the first point. Christ's hard words. Secondly, Christ's offensive words. And thirdly, Christ's predictive words. So let's jump in. Do you believe Christ's hard words are life-giving. Verse 60, when many, not some, of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, what was the hard saying? We have to remember this. In verse 53, this is what Jesus was teaching the group. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, let's stop right there. He really wants you to get it when he goes, truly, truly. He's slowing you down to go, I'm going to say something that's really true. What did he say? I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which was him, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. you imagine being there and hearing someone say that? Well, what is the meaning of his metaphor? He was telling these learners that life is at its best when you swallow this fact. God became a man. He had to suffer because you're a sinner, and he had to die in your place, and you must take that in. Life can only be at its best when you trust Christ's death for you. And why does he say that the saying, he describes the saying that they did as hard, it's hard to hear. Hard was a word used in that culture, and we use it on our own. It was the word scleros, hardening of the arteries. Have you ever heard of that? Harsh words. In the book of James, which we talked through in the last year, James says large ships can only be moved by scleros, hard winds. You imagine being on a ship and the wind is not blowing and you need the sails to be full of wind. You need a harsh wind. We were driving in today and Elaine always puts the signs up to represent us on Friday and she said, I know with those winds, one of our signs is probably knocked over. Well, not only was it knocked over, but it the the facing of it literally was ripped off and we're going to have to fix a sign. This is the word that they used. You know, Jesus, you you talk sometimes and it feels like a wind that's pushing at me. Now, I don't know about you, but I like it when my hair stays in place. I'm actually kind of glad that I've got a little hair. But I'm still so prideful that when I walk into work and the wind messes with my hair, i got to get to a mirror because I don't want to look sloppy. Jesus, you talk sometimes with words that don't just mess up my hair, but they mess up the direction of my heart. And I don't like it. Hard. Because you have to admit your hunger can only be satisfied by the arrival of God who came to die in the flesh. I had a seminary professor. I think Daryl had him too. His name's Doug Kelly. He was a Southern gentleman, Mr. Bowtie and all. I'll never forget sitting in his class. I love to listen to him, talk about the word. But he looked at us as future preachers. He was kind. He was brilliant. He never said a hard word. But he looked at us and he said, "If you're going to preach, I'm going to tell you something. When you preach the law of God, what is right, what is wrong, you will anger people." I was like, "Well, that's I knew. I I I know that." But then he looked at all of us and he slowed down and he sat up straight and he said, "You know, nobody likes the law because." That's an authority higher than them. And we're Americans here. We don't like to be told what to do. When he looked us in the eye, he said, when you actually preach grace, you will repulse people. I sat there and really listened. Why would grace, which sounds so soft, not harsh, repulse people? And he said this, Grace says you yourself cannot do anything to save yourself from eternal death away from God. Nothing. You must take what is outside of you, the free gift of the Son, and bring him in. I remember that day. Grace is not optional. It's essential for your existence. I remember him looking at us as young future preachers, and saying, you're going to have to tell people that God loves them simply because He loves them. Why was it hard to understand these magic words? Well, it wasn't hard, it wasn't hard to understand. Let's ask it as a question. Was it hard to understand it? He was pretty clear. Look, I'm like I'm like food. And my my blood is like drink, you got to drink me in or you you're, you don't have life. It's not inte- intellectually difficult. Verse 60 actually says this, who can listen to this, Jesus? Listen means I heard it with my mind, but I don't appreciate it with my heart. And there's no way I'm going to execute with my will what you just said. See, they did not have an information problem. They had an inclination problem. Aldous Huxley the atheist philosopher and the author of a book many of us had to read called Brave New World, he did not like Christianity. But he had the intellectual honesty to admit that it wasn't that he didn't get it, it's that he didn't like it. Let me read what he said. He said this, "'I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption.'" The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world isn't concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Now, listen to this. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Now, if I lost some of you, you're like, what are you bringing up, a big old philosopher? This is a very smart, smart, smart person who does not want the words of Jesus. And he's basically saying, I want to live like I want sexually, but if I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to change. And because I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. It's not an information problem. It's an inclination problem. Let me give you one more uh, philosopher. Thomas Nagel, read some of his stuff. He is not a Christian. He's so clear and he's intellectually honest. He said this, I want atheism to be true. I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. Well, thank you to these men made in the image of God, who are honestly saying, oh, I get it. I just don't like it. Remember, though, these were many of his disciples. They were not atheists. They were like you and me. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. You see, the church does not have an educational problem. We have an entrusting and executing problem We had our first men of Aspen. We had a good group of guys. And what did Daryl hold up? Micah, the book of Micah, 6 8. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love justice. We're supposed to love mercy and walk humbly. There is not a Christian man that doesn't realize, it doesn't agree, yeah, I should be just, I should love mercy, and I should be humble. But when you read the story of the Good Samaritan, We might know we're supposed to help our neighbors, but do we actually go out of our way and sacrifice our very life to help our neighbors? We know that our unbelieving friends will not survive without Jesus. And how many of us this last week even thought of your unbelieving friend? They will not survive without Jesus. We have an entrusting and an execution problem. If I use myself as an example, I often feel like I've got a cartoon bobblehead full of information about God. My goodness, I went to seminary and I have a doctoral degree, but my heart is much smaller and my hands are teeny. I appreciate David Wells, a theologian, that said this. And these are examples of hard words to hear. He says, the church often uses the marketing model. You empty the truth out of of the gospel. First, the needs of the consumers what they have are the needs they identify for themselves, but the needs sinners have are needs God identifies for us. It's hard to hear a gospel that questions and subverts our selfishness. So let's review. Christ's hard words are life-giving. Secondly, do you believe Christ's offensive words are life-giving. Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling even about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? How did Jesus know that his learners were being offended? Well, like you and me, they were grumbling. They were grumbling. Grumble. It's when we complain under our breath. See, we're not just going to outright tell somebody that they rubbed us the wrong way, that they degraded us, that they made us feel bad. We're going to go on social media. We're going to go to a friend. We're going to tell our spouse. He heard them. Rumbling, secretive speech, snarky, sassy. What is the root of when you grumble? It's that your self-oriented expectations are actually being invaded by a reality that you just don't like right now. Reality doesn't actually orbit and orient around you. You orbit and orient to reality, and the one in control of your reality is God. Jesus says, "'You must savor and satiate your spiritual appetite with me and me alone, the bread of life.'" I don't think the bread of life gets to us like it would have back then for them. When I was an ICU director, and I had young people on ventilators that were dying, you want to know what their family wanted to make sure that they had? Oxygen. If you yourself were struggling, or if you struggled with an oxygen issue, until you struggle with the fact that you've been assuming all morning that your next breath is just going to come to you, Until you realize that when you are so sick that you can't get another breath, or even a machine may not give you that breath because your life is in the balance. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, you would have heard him say, I am as important as your next breath. Why? Because in that culture back then, 90% of your money went to food, and the food that kept you alive was your bread. Jesus is saying this, and it sounds offensive. I am not just the maker of bread. I am not just the baker of bread. I am the bread of life. 90% of a person's income would go to buy that bread. He is saying this, bread is life. Bread, I am that without which you cannot live. I'm not cake. I'm not a luxury. I'm not a snack, an option between your regular meals. When grace is the, is only an option for you, not your only option, you are not swallowing the offense of grace. I am bread, the most basic need for your life. Without me, you cannot and will not function. Without me, you will die. You need me more than you need your next meal. So these statements, boy, they come at us hard, but we grumble. We're defensive. We don't want to hear. We just tell somebody else, oh my, can you believe Jesus said, can you believe it? So he asks them questions. What a good rabbi. Questions sneak around the side and help us really deal with things. He asks them two searching questions. Here's the first one. Do you take offense at this? He slows them down to really let them own this. Offense. It was the word scandalon. If you're talking to somebody about a scandal, it means someone has done something that goes against your deepest rooted sense of right and wrong. There's a scandal in the news. There's a scandal. Scandal though, was the trigger on the bait trap. You know, you put the box in the backyard, you want to catch the bunny, and you put the stick. Jesus is saying, I'm saying stuff and you're grumbling. Did I just trigger you? Did I just trigger you with the words that I'm giving, which are so good, but they're triggering you, and you're going, I don't want to get trapped by that. Interesting word, Jesus. The bait stick, the little bunny hits and catches them in their trap. Jesus is saying, are my words triggering and trapping you? Did they trigger you? Did they hurt your feelings? With Jesus, sometimes it's good to feel bad, and it's bad to feel good. I want to say that twice because I'm an American that likes to feel good. Most of the energy of my week is ensuring that I feel really good. Sometimes, Jesus would say, and it sounds offensive to our American ears, it's good to feel bad, and it is bad to feel good. Why? When? Well, when a husband or wife feels good about having an affair. I'm glad I'm not found out this week, or an addict feels good about the rush of the illegal drug. The cheater and the drug abuser will become distant from their spouse and kids with those good feelings. Selfishness for any of us feels so good, but it is good for a selfish person to feel bad. We have a saying in the nursing world, because a lot of nursing is painful. A lot of treatments are uncomfortable. We have a saying, you do not heal if you do not feel bad about wanting to only feel good. I want to say it again because some of you don't heal because you run from these offensive words of Jesus. You do not heal if you do not feel bad about feeling good. Now, don't walk away going, man, what a sermon today. Jesus doesn't want me to feel good. Of course he does. He does. He created pleasure. But he's saying to them in this searching question, Have I offended you by my words? You, you feel yucky right now. You feel like you want to put you feel like your hair's getting messed up. You feel like your heart's getting messed with. You feel like I'm saying your whole way of directing your life will change where you must take grace, not save yourself. But then he asks him a the second searching question. If you thought that one was offensive, It was in what you would call a how much more argument. If you can't take the small hard saying about you can only take me in his bread, how are you going to swallow a bigger pill? What was that bigger pill? Look at verse 62. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Why would that have been offensive? Because someone who ascends is the king, This means that Jesus isn't just, oh, I'm glad I got saved. He's your Lord. A king is the one who does what? He has the right to guide you, govern you, rule you in every area of your life. Ooh, that rubs me hard. That means that if he's the king who has ascended, he's in control of your schedule, your spare time, your sports, your shows, your specialty of work, your sexuality, your shopping lift, all your stuff, and he's even in charge of your standard of living. And by the way, this is a compliment by Jesus Christ when he says, I am king. He is saying you are so gloriously designed that your desires will only be satisfied by being not only saved, but guided by my direction. You know, if you put ketchup in a gas tank, which none of you would do. I mean, it's ridiculous. If you put ketchup in a gas tank, the ketchup is not essential to your car. It'll actually ruin your car. Jesus the king is saying, you've got to take me in and only me, and you have to see me as the ascended king. He is not a way to get your life. He isn't a set of rules for your life. He is life. So it's hard to swallow that He's the only way to be saved. He's the King. But there's something He says that's even more difficult. He says He's ascending to where He was before. Christ is saying that He is the pre existing God. So let's review. The magic words of Christ, we first find out his hard words are life giving. Will we take them in? His offensive words are life giving. And number three, do you believe Christ's predictive words are life giving? Predictive words. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. See, Jesus can look at a group of us today, a group of learners, and he can know from the beginning some of us that do not believe. He knows that some people will stay in community but use him for personal gain. Christ is God, he knows all. Christ knows our true colors. His eyes see into us like an x-ray or an MRI. And look at verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you. No one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. See, Jesus predicted that no one's going to believe unless the plan of the Father who sends the Son will come and find them. Some of you are really offended at this. It's like, wait a minute. I'm the one who chose to follow Jesus. Give me a break. I turned my life around for Jesus. Go back to the garden. After the first sin, you do not see even Adam knocking on the door of God and saying, wow, we really screwed up. They ran. They hid. And you know what God did? God hatched a plan. Let's go find them. They're fearful. They've They've broken the heart of God, but God goes to find them. And Jesus is saying, listen, God the Father has a plan. We already know We already know that we've come to save sinners. And that can rub us wrong. You mean somebody's got a plan outside of my plan? But his predictive words, if we'll just believe this amazing Jesus. And then look what he says here. In verse 70, Jesus answered them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Same garden language. God chooses to run after the people running away. Didn't I choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now, some of you are like, whoa, Jesus, that just kind of was like when the record's playing and it's like, Err! you just called one of, your, one of your learners a devil? Devil. It means there's someone in this group that's really comfortable with slandering me. There's someone who will attack my goodness and call it bad, my truth and make me look false, my beautiful reputation and and they will have no problem letting it be known that my reputation is not beautiful. Verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Betray him. Betray. Yeah, I've got a learner, Jesus says, who is going to betray me. Betray means to hand over. It's the word paradidomi in Greek. And the reason I want to bring it up in Greek is that, check this out, In Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it says this, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the 12. He went away, and listen to these words, he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So in Luke 22, you have Judas saying, I'm going to hand over Jesus. I'm going to look like I'm a learner, but I'm going to hand him over. But then in Ephesians 5, 2, look what it says, the same word. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Christ gave, it's the word paradidomite. He handed himself over for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the book of Acts, it has a couple of places in chapter 2 and 4 where it says, yes, God predicted the way that Jesus would suffer, but man was responsible for their evil. Judas did evil. But do not miss the living words of Jesus. This was not a surprise. Jesus would be the one who gave himself up for us. Gave. He sacrificed. The sacrifice in the Old Testament was predicted. Someone would come. Read Isaiah 52. Because of Christ's love, he gave himself up as a sacrifice for your sin. And, you know, he said he would ascend. We have a cross always here as one of our symbols. Christ ascended 10 feet off the ground, nailed to a cross, because he would give himself up so that you would get in on life. It's amazing. So let's review. Christ's hard words are life-giving. Christ's offensive words are life-giving, and his predictive words are life-giving. Do you personally believe that, though? Do you believe Christ's words are life-giving? Jesus calls the verdict with, with Peter. He goes in 67, verse 67, he, well, he says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Because at this point, most of those people hightailed it and ran out of here, ran out of there. I remember being an officer and I was taught many things, but when I was in boot camp, I remember this old colonel looking at all of us as officers and he said this, the real test of your army is if you can lead them so well that when they're tired... When they're exhausted and when it's hard, they will still do the mission. Jesus is saying, look, guys, it's getting tough because I'm saying things that are getting real. I'm saying things that people will feel degraded, but I'm not degrading them. I'm upgrading them, but they'll feel it. The rabbi is always asking questions to invite the learner on a new quest. And Peter says in verse 68, and I wonder if you'd say it with him. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? Who's got words like you? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Notice Peter, for, P- Peter identifies Christ as Lord. Verse 69, we've believed. We've come to know you are the Holy One of God. In the Old Testament, the Holy One of God was God. God. Notice that Peter identifies Christ as the Holy One of God. Isaiah 43.3, I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One. Oh my goodness. Holy means Christ's beauty is brighter. Christ's goodness is greater. Christ's truth, and it's so hard to hear sometimes. It's more transcendent than we can ever imagine. And what about you? Did you notice there were three reactions that we heard in this short story to the words of Christ? Three reactions when the magic words were uttered. Some, number one, bolted. They were done. They walked away. Secondly, though, some stayed and they betrayed. There will be people even in our congregation as we grow. We call them the stay and spray. They'll learn the words. They'll figure out the things, but they're getting something from God. They're getting something from the experience. They have a spray-on version They might even have really big heads and really small hearts and really little hands, but that's a reaction. People will stay and spray and play, and they're always going to be amongst us. But there's a third group, and I wonder if you're in it. That group believed, and they came alive. So would you imagine with me as we end Imagine with me that you are running in your life with... You're just running, and there's this cliff. And someone who knows your propensity to just run and not think, and someone who knows that that cliff, once you go over it, you will die, can you imagine someone saying three words, three words to you while you run and you're like wildly coyote and you're just a little bit off the cliff and they yell these words grab the branch be there you've miscalculated you've used your energy to have an exciting experience because you were just running for it to experience life but you have to make a decision when you're out there and you realize And when someone says, grab the branch, that might rub you wrong because it's going to face you with the fact that you did something that's going to need salvation. Grab the branch is all you hear from this person. It's not your belief that you focus on at this moment, it's the branch. The breathtaking beauty of an actual branch, a piece of wood. Belief is reliance on the word of another. If you believe the words of that friend and you grab that branch, you will live. You will live. Jesus Christ alone is the word. And if you believe in him and what he did on that wood for you, you have eternal life. Oh, those are good words. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that even our youngest children don't like it when we say no. Something rubs them wrong when we cross their will. The youngest of us, and when we get older and self-sufficient and live in South Charlotte and we, we kind of figure out how to navigate life, Father, the words of your son can just feel degrading and harsh and windy and fierce and mean, and they trigger us. Lord, they trigger our friends. Many of our friends don't want to get anywhere near you, God. But We believe something deeper. You sent your only son, and he was a teacher. And John, his follower, wrote these words. And we are a church that loves to worship, loves to hear the words that come out of your mouth. Lord, people are becoming Christians in our church, and I would pray if there was someone that's here today that's always kept your word of grace at a distance, they would simply take it in. We take it in through the ears but we believe it in the heart that this would be a day, Lord, that someone has grabbed the cross and they've found their only Savior. If they take in this truth, they will live forever. Thank you so much that John wrote this part of the hard words of Jesus. Thank you for life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.